And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You are just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge. Today, Brian Stewart checks in once again with his take on what we're not talking about in terms of the conflict in Ukraine. Once again, from Scotland, up in the Highlands in northern Scotland, in the kind of Dornick, Ambo, Golsby area of Scotland. It's on the northeast coast. And it's been spectacular weather here since we've been here. I know it's been snowing back in central Canada, which seems hard to believe in terms of, you know, mid to approaching late April, but you got what you got. And <laughs> We're fortunate. It's not warm necessarily here, but it's been gorgeous, beautiful, sunny uh, weather. And all right, we're not here to talk about the weather. We're not here to talk about Scotland or central Ontario for that matter. We're here to talk about Ukraine. Yesterday, we checked in on the COVID story, brought, I think, uh, listeners up to date with a uh, you know fascinating, blunt interview with uh, Dr. Isaac Bogotch from the University Health Network in Toronto. Uh, Today, it's our weekly check-in with Brian Stewart. And Brian, the former war correspondent, former foreign correspondent, in touch with all things defense-related, foreign policy-related. And he's been watching the Ukraine story each weekend, looking for the angles that necessarily aren't necessarily being discussed that much in the world's media and bringing them to the forefront for us. And he does so again today. Now, for starters, in terms of background, this is a difficult week in Ukraine. You see the story of Mariupol, which has been the focus of some attention for the last few weeks. It's an eastern Ukrainian city, port city, uh, important in that sense with access to the water. Uh, And it has been under bombardment from Russian forces for weeks now. And the Russians thought they would have taken it by now. They haven't, but they could be on the verge of taking it. They claim it could fall today. And what makes it different about that claim is some of the Ukrainian defense leaders are saying the same thing. The Ukrainian forces are pretty well now down to a a kind of Alamo situation in the steel plant. It's a giant steel plant in Mariupol. And that's where the holdouts, the Ukrainian defenders, are. It's a huge place, and it's actually pretty good for combat of that kind in terms of the defense forces. But they're running out of people, they're running out of ammunition, and they're running out of time. And they seem to admit that themselves. Now, huddled with the defenders are upwards of a 1,000 civilians. It's been their hiding place in the basements, the underground tunnels of the steel plant. So you can imagine that. Women, children, young kids, with this bombardment going on all around them all the time. So that looks pretty grim on all fronts. The Ukrainians won't give up. They won't surrender. At least that's what they've said so far. 
that they will fight to the last fighter. That's the Alamo comparison. Well, we can only hope and pray that somehow there's a miracle happens for those Ukrainian defenders. We'll see how this day unfolds. The Russians are making their move throughout eastern Ukraine. They claim that's now all they want after abandoning their attempts to take Kiev. We'll see how true that is. It's been hard to believe anything the Russians have said since the beginning of this whole episode. But we'll see. Now, at the same time, not everything has gone against the Ukrainians in this last little while. In fact, they had a huge, and not just a symbolic, victory over the weekend. And that was the sinking of the Russian ship Moscow. Now, that was reported and talked about to a degree over the weekend. But I'm not sure that we ever got to the real significance and importance of that sinking. And that's what Brian wants to talk about today. So we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll get right into it with Brian Stewart, right after this. Okay, as promised, Brian Stewart, the former veteran, foreign correspondent, war correspondent, who's been right there in the dirty side of war, the ugly side of war. He's seen it close up. He's reported on it for decades now. And he is one of the, in my view, one of the best read journalists on conflict and on this particular story. And so when we talked the other day, I said, what, what's not being talked about enough? He said, the Moscow. We've got to talk about the Moscow. So, let's talk about the Moscow. Here's Brian Stewart. Well, Brian, it's good to talk to you again. And, uh, you know, it's been a little while, but there are a number of things to catch up on. But the thing I find the most intriguing is the story of the Moskva, and that's the Russian naval vessel. And to try and understand its importance, for starters, you know, it's called the Moscow. So it obviously is important to the Russian Navy and to the Russian government. But it has been lost because it appears of a Ukrainian missile. Now, I want you to, to, to tell us the significance and the importance of that loss, not only to Russia right now, but to this conflict overall. It's an enormous event. Uh, I think it's been underplayed, if anything. In fact, uh, a few days after the war, the invasion began, I began to fantasize about somebody taking out the Moskva uh, and then I'm sure I was not the only person because anybody old enough to remember the Falklands War 40 years ago this month will remember the importance uh, to a nation when it loses a major ship like a flagship. And the Argentinians, as we remember, lost their Belgrano. It was sunk by a British submarine. And indeed, the British lost key vessels like the Sheffield and the Atlantic conveyor uh, by attacks 
at sea. And for some reason, I guess we can all imagine the awfulness of going down at sea. But for some reason, the loss of sea vessels has a bigger prestige and shock value than many events, most events on land or in the air. And the Moskva, to put it in perspective, it was about the same size as the Belgrano, actually. It was you know, 12,500 tons. It was a major missile cruiser. It was the pride of the Russian Black Sea Fleet. It was also the command and control vessel. It was the one that was supposed to control all the rest of the fleet and protect it with its missiles against its own anti-air missiles and its anti-missile missiles and its anti-missile firing devices was supposed to protect a lot of the other ships of the fleet uh, from being destroyed. And I think to the, uh, the Ukrainians from the very beginning, they looked at this ship as the pot of gold if they could get it, both for the propaganda value and for its immense military uh, importance. Because with the the Moskva gone, it effectively, I think, robs the Russian fleet in the Black Sea of any real capability to launch an amphibious landing uh, close to Odessa which is all being greatly feared if they want to take that last port really in the hands of the Ukraine. Uh, amphibious landing was always a possibility. The Moskva would have been a key part of that, perhaps the key part. And to lose that now to two missiles fired, homemade missiles made by the Ukrainians fired into a ship that was probably one of the most protected ships in the entire Russian Navy is an unbelievable humiliation. And it's not much surprise the Russian government simply cannot bear to admit that it was sunk by enemy fire. But how they commit, how it looks any better to them to say a fire broke out and it sank at sea after its own accident with Russia's uh, notorious reputation for bad handling of ammo that has been ongoing for years. I can't see how that's in any better scenario. It's a terrible loss for Russia. It's an enormous uh, military and propaganda gain for the Ukraine. And uh, it is a very significant, really, to all the navies in the world. We talked a couple of weeks ago about perhaps the tank will have seen its day because so many tanks are being destroyed in this whole, this war. It, it's just like they're being carved open like sardine cans by shoulder-fired missiles, that simple method. Well, all the major navies of the world, including the American and the Chinese and, and uh, the rest of the big ones are all worried sick about how vulnerable their major ships are now to missiles fired from land. They don't have to be fired at sea anymore. They can be fired from land. They're relatively cheap to make. Uh, you can have all the sophisticated devices in the world, but if they can figure out a way to get through those devices, you're going to lose perhaps an aircraft carrier with 5,000 crew members, uh, you know, or another cruiser like this with 500 to 1,000. Um, so it's a big worry to navies that they have got to come up with a better way to uh, protect these big ships. And they haven't really, they're working on it all the time, of course, but I think the Russians were well behind where the Americans and the Chinese are in terms of protecting their ships and the sort of anti-missile, anti-aircraft uh, uh, devices they've got. But still, they've got to be worried after something like this. 
I'd say so. And, you know, you've well outlined the uh, the importance of the Moskva to the Russian fleet and just the, the number of different facts and figures that are were associated with it. The one the one you left out was the one that, uh, that, that startled me when I really started to think about it. It's, you know, this wasn't just any other ship in the fleet. 600 feet long. Now, think about that for a minute. That's almost two football lengths football field lengths uh, of ship. That, that, that is one big ship. Uh, now, whether these two missiles, the homemade missiles, you're making it sound like some guy was making these missiles in his basement or something. But, uh, you know, this wasn't, uh, you know, uh, this wasn't just a lucky shot. Obviously, they have great faith in, in, in their missile capabilities, and, and they took out you know, the pride of you, as you said, of the fleet. Um, there are a couple of things that, that I, I find ama- amazing about the story. I mean, you, you mentioned earlier about the Belgrano, the Argentinian uh, battle cruiser or whatever it was that was sunk by the, the British uh, submarine at the beginning of the Falklands War. And then the devastating news when it hit that uh, HMS Sheffield, the British destroyer, um, had been sunk uh, by a, an Argentinian, I think it was an Exocet missile. It was, um, yes. That, that totally changed the uh, kind of face of that conflict in the South Atlantic because um, the only defense system that they were confident in, the British, uh, f- to protect their fleet, was to have helicopters hovering around their ships to to attract missiles if they were coming in, and then they could do a maneuver if if they did uh, much faster than obviously a, a ship could do. And the reason I remember that, and, and you know, he, he's not talked of with any fondness these days, and that's for sure. But uh, Prince Andrew was one of those helicopter pilots. It was sort of the last great thing he did back in 1982 during the Falklands War. He was a chopper pilot, and he used to, you know, he he'd go up in in his chopper to try and uh, deflect incoming Exocet missiles. Um, but th- that that did in many ways change um, the, the, the face of that conflict. And yet still, and we still see it today, um, and you kind of touched on this, but I'd like your further thoughts on it, that you know we tend to look at the land war, the land conflict, much more so than anything else. So we don't give much time or thought uh, to what what happens at sea. Now, I don't know how much of this conflict is at sea or could possibly be at sea, um, but there is a much much more fo- focus on the conventional uh, battles that take place on land than at sea. Very much so. Um, the Ukrainians have very little navy left, but they do have these missiles, and they're as effective as having the ships actually out there. Um, the sea battle is so incredibly important in this war because if the Russians were to land north of Odessa and then take Odessa, they would then hold the entire Ukrainian coast. Ukraine is one of the great grain shippers, wheat shippers in the world. Uh, it's an enormous wheat basket, grain basket. I'm not sure my agricultural terms. Uh, it would lose that capability and devastate the Ukrainian economy. So it has to hold Odessa. Uh, the Russians, in the meantime, um, they have to back up their 
their offensive in the east with fire offshore by naval ships. These naval ships now won't be able to provide quite the same protection as they did before. So the Navy war was has always been uh, very important there. But the media are necessarily uh, focused on the cities that have been under siege. That's where obviously the cameras would tend to be. Uh, they don't see the air war going on and they certainly don't see the sea war. So it's important to keep in mind when we're reading news stories of, of this conflict that a lot more is going on out there that we don't really see. I would mention one other thing. You were quite right to pick up my calling the Neptune missiles homemade as they were put together in a garage. I, mean, <laughs> I think I mentioned in one of the first broadcasts with you that, uh, you know, Ukraine was only 10 years ago the fourth largest arms exporter in the world. It's got an enormous arms making a very sophisticated one manufacturing system on its side. It just doesn't manufacture enough for the kind of war it's now getting into. That's interesting. That's why it needs. That's why it does need these constant resupplies from the West. Yeah, that's why what I was just going to follow that up with. If it's got such a great system, why why does it why is it begging for more arms from everyone else, including Canada? Well, for for two reasons, uh, both fairly ominous. Uh, their weapons are are good, but they're aged. A lot of them are from the Soviet era. Now, those are still very lethal weapons, a lot of them, and they prove their worth, uh, tanks and the rest of it at times. Um, but they they don't make enough of them for the kind of major war we're now uh, we're now moving towards in the east. Uh, they need enormous resupply of different kinds of weapons too. The war is going to change. We're in phase two. We're moving from a siege of the cities and built up areas where you have suburbs and you have forests and you have fields and uh, lots of places for enemies to hide. It's now moving to the east where two major forces, the Russians and the Ukrainian uh, forces, are basically going to face each other off. Off and a, a landscape that looks often like Saskatchewan, sort of flat f- forest, but not forest, a farming area. Uh, it's going to mean much more concentration of forces, much more reliance upon heavy artillery or multiple rocket firing devices, radars that can pinpoint enemy artillery sites and there and therefore have a counter barrage. It will need much more anti aircraft capabilities to keep the Russian. F- uh, planes from coming over and attacking built up of, uh, concentrations of Ukrainian troops. So everything is going to be needed in much more scale than we've seen to date. And remember, it has to come in from the Polish border, which is all the way over on the west of Ukraine to the very east. And that's got to come in under threat of attack by uh, Russian cruise missiles, by other precision weapons, by drones, and by increasing number of Russian aircraft raids. So uh, unless we get the Ukrainians get more uh, anti-air missiles, uh, anti-air artillery devices, anti-radar devices, all of those things, uh, they're going to be in a very, very tight corner uh, within a matter of uh, two or three weeks from now. You know, you use the, the phrase a major war, that we're in a major war, um, witnessing what, what's unfolding uh, in and around Ukraine. And I... I want you to expand on that for a little bit because I think, you know, we, we tend to think of major wars as, you know, conflicts not like, you know, World War II. Um, and we tend to dismiss others as kind of regional conflicts. 
And I think in some ways, some are suggesting, okay, that, you know, this is a big deal, but it's a regional conflict, really. But is it? When you use the term major war, what what are you thinking? Well, I'm thinking it's not like the limited wars we, we would, the Russians, for instance, fought in Syria or the Americans in Iraq or in Afghanistan, where uh, you, you take the country with fairly limited uh, fighting at the beginning. The, the Russians, of course, were invited and they didn't take anything, but they were invited into run part of it. And then it becomes a kind of counter insurgency war, by and large, where you don't use the great uh, battalions and brigades and divisions en masse. You, you move in smaller numbers uh, in counterinsurgency warfare, policing operations very often, very very limited air raid uh, needs on capabilities even. Uh, the enemy are often gone to ground and hard to find. Uh, all of that is somewhat limited. So the officers don't get a lot of training. And what a, a major war, what I'm talking about is the use of big, big numbers, like a whole, uh, it's estimated that uh, Russia has um, something like, you know, I think it's close to 80 um Battalion tactical groups now. These are groups, each one of them about a thousand, um, but usually around 700. So we're really dealing 40 to 50,000. The Ukrainians have at least 12 of their battalions in there. So we're dealing with 40, 50,000 in a much more concentrated area. You're using vast numbers of armor, tanks, armored personnel carriers of all kinds. Um, heavy missiles, heavy artillery, radar systems, all of that are brought into play at once. And it takes on not quite the scale, of course, of the Second World War, where we saw armies of millions coming together on the Western Front and even almost tens of millions on the Eastern Front. But here you will be seeing what are, for our modern scale of war, very large numbers. And this is quite rare to see. Even in Vietnam, you didn't see many major actions of several, say, American brigades to operating together. It was one brigade against a, a northern Vietnamese uh, half division or something like that. This is going to be much more like a conventional war, I guess you would call it, more of the on-the-ground conventional, where all systems have to be brought into play at once. And this is where I think the Ukrainians have a real advantage because they've been trained for eight years by NATO to a very high technical uh, capability of command and control and radar and the rest of it. Uh, and they've been trained to work in both large numbers, but also in very, very small numbers, where the Russian training has been very lacking and they don't have have a, a, anything like uh, the professionalism of the, the NATO training. Uh, they've even admitted that themselves. I mean, this is not something people are saying about the Russians. They've had a goal for years now to get more up to a more professional officer corps. They don't have NCOs in large numbers, the sergeants that are the backbone of modern armies. This is putting a lot of things together, but the problem, this is what I'm talking about. Major war means putting a lot of things together. Not a raid on this town or a raid on that town, not taking out Bin Laden, not seizing control of one province. This is bringing together your armor, your artillery, your rockets, your cruise missiles, your command and control systems, your radar systems. And all of that's going to come together in a situation where this is interesting. The Russians have more enormous amount of equipment. 
they don't have enough soldiers. The Ukrainians, because they're a nation of 44 million in Ukraine, have plenty of soldiers to rely upon, but they don't have enough equipment. So they have the complete opposites coming together. It's very interesting that the Russians have so few infantry that it's been pointed out time and again that they have lots of the armor and personnel moving around in armored vehicles and the rest of it. When it comes to ground soldiers, the grunts that go forward and attack and take out positions, they're really quite limited to some thousands and they get chewed up very, very fast in battle that's the you and i have all seen with units that have been in a, a conflict zone too long it's not too long before the weariness takes over and mistakes happen and the rest of them and they begin to lose morale i think the russian position right now is they're 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 entering a major conventional front war on eastern ukraine but without sufficient manpower and it is manpower for them uh, and not not enough reserves that they can call upon, that they can train up to any kind of combat standard in the amount of time uh, facing them. So I'm not sure what they're going to do, except they're going to rely incredibly heavily on artillery and I think more air attacks. And that is again where Ukrainians have to be able to counter that. Otherwise, they, they could get encircled in the east or they could have to retreat very fast from the east, which would be disaster. All right. This has all been fascinating, Brian, as it always is talking to you. Um, we're just about out of time, but let, let me just close the loop on this by bringing up the one area that we haven't talked about and, and gets very little attention, really, is what is going on in the air in terms of, uh, you know, the air war. I mean, leaving, leaving the, the missiles aside in terms of actual air war that were the more conventional type of uh, that we tend to think of in terms of, of the air. Is there anything happening? Certainly nothing like the Battle of Britain, if we have an ima- imagination of that, right. or the MiG, the MiG and, uh, and Sabre jet fights over Korea and stuff like that. The Russians are upping their number of sorties, that's one mission per one plane uh, at a time, to something like uh, up to 200, 250 now, which is getting to a fair bit. But it's still is modest. That a day? That's a day? In a day, in a day, wow. yes. And, but the, and the Ukrainians are only actually mounting about up to 10 or 15 per day, which shows uh, far less. But what's interesting in both these cases is both of them are doing far less than they could. The Russians are being extremely cautious. They are reluctant to come across the border very much because they're very fearful of the missiles that the Ukrainians have, both the S-300s, which are high altitude, and a lot of the shoulder-fired and smaller missiles that can take out planes up to 20,000 meters, 18,000 feet, that range. They've lost about 20 planes already. That's a lot for them. The Ukrainians are also flying far fewer than the planes they seem to have. And the reason is both sides are husbanding their resources. They realize that uh, this air war could become very, very intense. And the Ukrainians have not wanted to fritter their planes away in individual attacks that uh, achieve very little. They want to keep a strategic reserve of enough planes to make a big impact in one day in a surprise attack, say, on Russian concentration. And the Russians are very weary, wary, I should say, of, uh, of the ground uh, anti-air capability. 
Ukrainians have. The, the Russian force, too, suffers a bit, but their pilots are not, again, as well trained up to NATO standards. They have many fewer flying hours per year, and they're not as adept with handling the, the very extraordinarily complex role that a modern uh, fighter pilot, bomber pilot uh has to be trained up to and they have to look after you know a counter counter anti-aircraft the local ground support that kind of stuff all at once while you're keeping an eye out for a possible missile coming at you or an enemy aircraft coming at you it's extremely complex and i think the russians are feeling they've got to do a lot more quick trick training before the big air battles that might be coming say uh three weeks or a month from now as, as the war in the east if it does really escalate if it gets to that point which i'm a fear i'm very fearful it will well, I guess the uh, the next few weeks and months are going to uh, give us the answer to, to those questions. Um, Brian, as always, uh, you've been a great help in trying to understand some of the things that are going on here. And I got to tell you uh, that from the um, mail I get at uh, at the bridge, you are certainly appreciated. And oh, that's look, very nice to hear. And look forward <laughs> to by our our listeners each week. Uh, so take care, and we'll talk again soon. We'll do, Peter. See you soon. Brian Stewart talking to us once again. His take on his commentary on what's happening on the Ukraine war. And what Brian always does is he looks for those angles and those stories that either aren't being talked about at all or aren't being talked about in his view enough. And that's what we ended up with uh, today, very much so. Um, the other thing I should mention about Brian uh, you know, he's been a longtime friend of mine, as, as all of you know, uh, since the early 1970s when we first met on a training course at the CBC. Um, and so I've, I've learned a lot over the years from Brian. Today, today is his 80th birthday. And he and his wife, Tina, are in uh, London, down in London, England, uh, for a, uh, a week's uh, break. And seeing some of the great uh, places that Brian, as a former foreign correspondent based in London, London uh, used to kind of hang out in, and some of the friends that uh, that he knows and stays in contact with uh, in the British capital. So, happy birthday to Brian, and thank him once again for taking a few minutes out from his birthday to uh, talk with us here on the bridge. All right, it's um, time to wrap it up, but we've had a kind of heavy-duty last couple of days. Yesterday, bringing us up to date on COVID. Today, bringing us up to date on um, the, the situation in Ukraine. So I wanted to leave with something. I, I don't know whether it's a lighter, but it, it's certainly uh, not as heavy as those two subjects. Um, have you ever been in the situation where you, you know, you're checking out somewhere to, you know, could be the grocery store, could be a clothing store, could be wherever, and you can't find your credit card, and you want to pay by credit, and you've misplaced it somewhere. Either you've forgotten your wallet totally, or your purse, or you just can't seem to find it in the kind of mess of your organized, <laughs> what you thought was an organized uh, uh, display of cards in you in whatever carrier you use anyway the bottom line is you don't have it with you so you've got to do hoops and jumps to figure out how you're going to pay 
That is not the situation for a 37-year-old fellow by the name of Patrick Palman, who lives in the Netherlands. And why is that? Well, it's because Patrick is one of 500 people in the world at the moment who have taken advantage of a situation where they have their credit card, or at least that little part of the credit card, that identifies you and has all your personal details and your credit information, the chip, he has that chip implanted in his hand. Now, if you look at your hand between the thumb and the index fingers, there's that kind of soft, fleshy part. That's where they've implanted a chip, his credit card information on a chip in there. He had it done a few years ago, 2019. And that's how he pays for everything. He just, you know, same way we hold our card up over that little machine and hope to that it connects, he just puts his hand there. Wherever he is, grocery store, bookstore, clothing store, movie theater, basketball game, whatever. Now, I'm not sure I want to do that. It says there's nothing to it. It's uh, like the actual operation of implanting the chip is kind of like pinching your skin. But the whole idea of having a chip inside your body, I'm not sure about that idea at all. I like the idea of not worrying about whether or not I've forgotten my wallet or lost my wallet. But I'm not so sure about having a chip in there. It sounds a little bit too much to me. However, it's out there, and the company that's making them is starting to sell them. They did it with the test cases. That the test case, that's how Patrick got it, and now they're, a, they're selling the stuff. It's out there, and as I said, there are about 500 people around the world who have it now. We'll see how that successful that is. There's one for you to think about. All right, a couple of um, mentions tomorrow. Good talk. Chantelle Bear and Bruce Anderson join us, and there are clearly things to talk about on the national political front, and we'll get right at it with uh, Chantelle and Bruce and their weekly uh, column they had last week off for Easter, so it'll be good to reconnect with them. And coming up next week, I had many, many requests about this, about six weeks ago. And we repeated it in the Encore editions last week. We had Jerry Butts and James Moore. Jerry Butts, former principal secretary to Justin Trudeau. James Moore, former cabinet minister for Stephen Harper. We had them together talking about kind of political conditions in Canada and trying to do it from a nonpartisan way. But basically by being informative about the process and how to make it better. And less partisan. So we're going to try it again next week. And I'm really looking forward to that. Um, I'll tell you the subject matter next week when we're coming up to it. But butts and more on the bridge once again. That'll be next week. Okay, I'm Peter Mansbridge. This has been the bridge for this day, this Thursday. Thanks so much for listening. And we'll talk to you again in just 24 hours.